Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 386. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show is So Gay like us because we sure as heck like you. We have a jam-packed show for you this week. We must get started. A few days ago, I had the great privilege of being able to screen a new documentary called From Selma to Stonewall, Are We There Yet? It was a truly moving piece, and I am more than pleased to welcome the executive producers and the partnership at the center of the film. Let me introduce them to you. The Reverend Gil H. Caldwell is a retired United Methodist minister and a lifelong activist in the civil rights movement from the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer to the Million Man March of 1996. Gil is the author of numerous books and blogs on social justice, including his latest collection, Something Within. Gil served several historic black churches in the Northeast, including Union Methodist in Boston and St. Mark's in Harlem. He also served as Associated General Secretary to the General Commission on Religion and Race in Washington, D.C., and as Executive Director of the Ministerial Faith Association of Harlem. Gil helped found several significant organizations on the forefront of erasing bigotry within the church, including the Black Methodists for Church Renewal, the National Conference of Black Churchmen, and United Methodists of Color for a Fully Inclusive Church, which works towards equality in ordaining Methodist ministers who are gay and lesbian. Joining him is Marilyn Bennett. Marilyn is an author, an activist, a video biographer, a nonprofit consultant, and has a long career in social justice working with LGBTQ equality and the church. She was executive director of Reconciling Ministries Network, a national organization working for sex and gender equality in the United Methodist Church. She has a Master's of Divinity from SMU Perkins School of Theology, where she later worked as the executive director of development, media, and alumni. Relations. She is the co-author of We Were Baptized Too, Claiming God's Grace for Lesbians and Gays. She currently produces video biographies for elders and people with cancer nationwide. And along with Reverend Caldwell, she is the co-founder of Truth in Progress. Both of them are now here with us. Gil, Marilyn, welcome to the show is so gay. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank so much. Well, we have so much ground to cover. I, I should tell our listeners we are recording this episode on a day that our country has has set aside to honor the work and legacy of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Gil, I'm wondering if you might be able to start us out by invoking his spirit for us to set the tone. What what should we all be carrying around with us today? Well, I, I think I think it is important that we're we're doing this on on the actual holiday. Of course, yesterday was his birthday. It would he would have been 88. Uh, and of course, just my own experience with him. Uh, I met him when he was 29, and I was 24 at Boston University School of Theology. And of course, since then, uh, I obviously was impressed by him. Then uh, there was an authenticity about him uh, that that I think we've seen uh, throughout. And of course, unlike uh, some persons with national acclaim, uh, who of course obviously have charisma, some persons are influenced by their own charisma, and it shows. Uh, but there's an authenticity, and I guess uh, I guess if I said one or two things, I I, um, I, I roam, and this is what 83-year-old people do, right? Uh, do you accept that on your program? I love it. 
<laughs> we tend to roam. There's a, there's a wonderful poem by Carl Himes that begins, uh, Dead men make such convenient heroes. And I think one of the, the, the problems we have is that we're sort of sanitizing the, uh, the radicality of Martin King. And, of course, I've tried to correct that. Uh, in terms of matter of gay rights, I'll rush to that, of course. I think that clearly you look at the, the history of Martin King, uh, he felt that the whole matter of, of, of racial rights was related to all kinds of rights. And, of course, he stepped out. He uh, got into trouble because he was, of course, against the, the war in Vietnam. Uh, and, of course, he was, he was involved in other things. The Poor People's Campaign dealt with economic issues. Uh, and so, in, in a sense, I've written elsewhere that, that, in fact, I believe that if he were alive today, he, of course, would be active and see the relationship, the intersectionality, vis-a-vis gay rights and racial rights, etc., uh, it's interesting, you know, I'll finish with this. It's interesting that just yesterday the New York Times carried a, a review of a book that I was unaware of, a book, I don't know, Marilyn, whether you were aware of a book uh, uh, that Coretta King uh, sort of authored with Barbara Reynolds, uh, but I, a very interesting review of that. And one of the things we know about a Coretta King was that she was outspoken in terms of her support of, of gay rights and same-sex marriage. And I think that, uh, of course, that's where Martin King would be. We, we, we must, and I guess... What motivates uh, our efforts, Marilyn and myself, is that this idea of the intersectionality of interest. And I am just so bothered by my black colleagues and other colleagues who see their particular justice issue as a kind of a silo issue unrelated to the others. So I've just said a lot that, that it's important for us to do this, and I, I hope maybe we'll touch King more in our conversation today. Without question. Without question. Speaking of radicality, you know, Marilyn, a, a lot of individuals maybe meet through a mutual friend or maybe a book club or they're in the supermarket. That is not the way that you and the Reverend met each other, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not. And um, we really bonded when we were doing a protest and then we're arrested together. And um, in Cleveland at the General Conference of the Methodist Church in 2000. Yeah, that is, that is when I began my journey into really seeing the civil rights movement because I was seeing it through Gil's eyes. And um, when we went to Selma, that, that is when I really, really started to understand it. And, you know, it's one thing to read his own book. It's another thing to be with someone and be around people who have been in it. But yes, the, the radicality of being arrested together at a church event, I'd say that's where we hopped off. I think it's a bonding experience. Not all of us have had that bonding experience, Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's true. That's true. Uh, I would have to say that Gil, uh, I'm going to tell a story on you. He had forgotten his driver's license, and so we all had to vouch that he was the one they were arresting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was interesting, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's ironic you? that of course this this program is set in Cleveland, uh, of course, and and I have memories of Cleveland, uh, and therefore I mean my uh, my two arrests in in Cleveland equaled my other arrests, so I have some real memories of Cleveland and its justice activities. I feel very close to you in that way. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, let, let's do let's do a little mutual appreciation, which I love doing with two guests. Reverend, talk to me about what Marilyn brings to this work. Well, of course, Marilyn, obviously, uh, as, as, as a person who is, who is lesbian, who has experienced all of the downsides, uh, particularly within the life of the Church, within our United Methodist Church, uh, it just seems to me that, of course, she, and I, I, I use a lot of cliches, but she, uh, uh, within United Methodism, uh, has, in fact, 
been able to stand up in many ways, uh, though the church has knocked her down. And, of course, she's outside the church now, so that that in itself is, I think, important. I think one of the things that, that Marilyn brought to me, and maybe I brought to her, was the importance of all of us having the experience of not only being advocates of our own particular causes, but being allies of others. And I found myself saying that uh, wherever I've been, that persons must uh, discover the joy of being an ally of people or a cause that may not be your primary cause. And, of course, I, therefore, have been, been greatly moved by Marilyn as she's sort of bridged this gap between, between gay rights and black rights. It was her. It was her idea that that uh, that we we I returned to Selma. Uh, I had not even thought of that in terms of going and revisiting where I was on that Tuesday following Bloody Sunday. And of course, that was very emotional. As as, as I was there, uh, I was there, of course, on that day with uh, Reverend James Reeb from Boston, the Unitarian minister who was beaten in Selma and later died. But I think that was another kind of thing that 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 Marilyn. Uh, and I guess uh, I would say some of my friends would say that despite her whiteness, uh, understood <laughs> the, the relationship between uh, my, my black journey and her journey. Uh, and, and so that, that, that was very important. And, of course, Marilyn also, I think, was called crucial as she was the executive of, of, a, of a reckoning group within the IMFS Church, this whole idea of United Methodists of Color for a fully inclusive church, so that she is executive uh, pull some of us together, people of color, to simply help us bridge this gap between our right struggles as people of color and, and gay persons. And so, you know, there's something that, that we bond because, in fact, uh, we, we are allies of each other. We sometimes call ourselves an odd couple, age-wise, race-wise, sexual orientation-wise, et cetera, et cetera, church-wise. Uh, she's now out. I'm still in. Uh, but that's, I think, sort of what has held us together over these years. Beautiful. Beautiful. Marilyn, this is the danger in going second. Good luck following that. But what does the <laughs> reverend bring to this work? Uh, I'd say that Gil really brings a lot of clarity on breaking down the issues, talking openly, and especially looking at the systemic issues, bringing it to a personal level so that people can see what's at stake, what are the what is is adding to racism, what are the consequences of anti gay policies. Gil is very authentic and very engaging with people and that is is a gift in itself of just of the way that he's present to people. I mean when we get in a taxi cab or wherever we are, when I go to pick him up at the airport, I often realize he's gone to the to get his shoe shines rather than come out to the to the where I pick him up. So he's out. He's having a conversation, getting the lay of the land before he he even you know steps out of the airport. And I really ad- admire and appreciate that about him. Our humor really bonds us together as we go into some of the places we've gone and people we've met and the negativity that one or the other of us or both of us might feel, you know, we have to have some, some humor, even in the pain and the, and the anger. He does a lot of writing and sending out email to people and, and uh, encouraging people to pass it on. And he is invigorated by a, a good debate and talking with people he has really given of himself 
to the LGBTQ community. He is rare. Hopefully he's, his number is growing. People like him as far as being a pastor who really understands how to be an ally. And, and I think particularly in the African American community, though he is a leader in all communities of showing what a pastor can do and be, but I but I think that he's taken a lot of heat from his his colleagues about being a part of this movement, and not everyone has a, appreciated in the LGBT community, not appreciated, have recognized what he has actually been giving to us, and that is what probably ultimately drew me to him, to knowing that he was giving us a gift, and he himself was a gift to the community, and I wanted to learn from him. And so as the first time that we were arrested, we were walking around the Cleveland Convention Center, and so the delegates, the thousand delegates were inside, and we were walking around it before we we went up to the place where we would start getting arrested, the, the area where we knew, you know, where we would make the protest. And so I was asking him, well, you know, when was the last time you did something like this? And, you know, just asking him about his life and his, um, when he had faced this kind of thing. Because I knew that I was holding the hand of someone that had experienced many more years and so much history that I would never know firsthand. And then as we came around the convention center, Fred Phelps and all his glory and his family and everybody was set up. And there were two areas. There was one with Phelps and his family, children holding hate signs. But this other area that we had to walk by was more like Phelps's sons. Like, let's put the wild ones over there. And they had, like, Ken dolls in compromising positions, and they were yelling the, the most vulgar things, and that's where the police on horses were set up. And I just said, well, I guess this helps remind us why we're doing this work. Yeah. And then we went on. <laughs> but that's that's a power of, of uh, a friendship, and it certainly has been my um, gift as a friend of Gil's. I can't help but preacher that I am, I think, of stories that I tell, of the story of, of the, the man who died and at his funeral, with the open casket, he, the pastor went on and on saying such wonderful things about the man deceased in the casket there. And his widow said to one of her children, go up there and see if that's your, your father they're talking about. When <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn says those wonderful things about me, I, I feel that. <laughs> the second thing, but I, 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 I'm a relational kind of person. Just the very name of this program, uh, let's see, it, it's, what, what, how do you call it? What is it? This show is so gay. <laughs> yeah, because it, 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 you know, it's interesting that 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 makes me think of, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Yeah. That James Brown, uh, of course, was about. Because I think, I dare say that there are some people who, who both maybe within the gay community and the straight community who don't understand <laughs> that that kind of bold bodaciousness. But uh, it, it it makes such such marvelous sense to to be out front in terms of who you are with a sense of joy. Do, do I capture the why of why that title is used? You, you do. You know, look, I'm a, I'm a white, gay, Jewish uh, college professor hanging out in Cleveland, t- uh, teaching mostly about race. And, and so th- 
those silos that you have been speaking about are, are so very real. And, and I think one of the beauties of From Selma to Stonewall really is that it gets at this intersectionality. And so to, to, to your point that you just made, how do we start taking pride in that intersectionality instead of letting it separate us, which I think it has done for so long? I think you really, of course, to, to recognize... I think those of us who, uh, by race or sexual orientation, of course, are victimized, need to understand how important it is, of course, to have allies. Uh, as just as I suggest, allies must somehow develop the ability to relate to other people. I mean, I guess I think it's, it's and I guess that's where Martin King was uh, yeah. in, in many ways. Uh, that 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 uh, what what was his phrase? I sometimes forget it. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yeah. I think is one of the things that's so important. I hadn't even. Hadn't spoken about. I use that a lot, don't I, Marilyn? But uh, I hadn't thought about that. But that, that's one of his great statements that speaks to that. And apparently, uh, that's what Marilyn and I have been about. And apparently, this program and you are about this in terms of what you do, both as a professor, as a resident of Cleveland, and uh, on this program. And that's that's great. Oh, all good stuff. All good stuff. Marilyn, talk to me about from Selman to Stonewall. Where are we going to be able to check this out? I enjoyed it so immensely. Um, well, we'll, you'll soon be able to check it out on, uh, we're going to start with Vimeo on demand so that we can get it up uh, immediately. We'll have it up this week as, uh, the 56 minute feature film. And then we will also start selling DVDs soon on our website. Later we'll, we probably will move to a different streaming site, but this, this allows people to have access to it right away. We are really in a time that we need to have conversation across lines, across a lot of lines. And it, and it takes courage to put yourself out there. And it takes courage to sit and listen to someone that may possibly you disagree with. And I think that the conversation that Gil and I began, we, we were very conscious of friendship and of trust and a commitment to sit with each other and talk with each other and say taboo things or say things that we wouldn't necessarily say to a different community that maybe LGBT people talk about, but they wouldn't talk about with non-gay people. Right. Or same for uh, the black community talking within themselves, but not, wouldn't say the same thing to a white person. So we were, we were really approaching a risk-taking venture, you know, that, we are putting words out there that, well, you know, I may not be saying this right. And but in, in uh, you know, general conversation on Facebook, for instance, you'll just get nailed for that, yeah. you know, <laughs> for making a mistake or just quickly being perceived as someone that doesn't understand or isn't trying to understand. So it's kind of like President Obama said, you know, off the Internet and talk to people in real life, and that's what we were doing, and it's needed right now, especially in areas where we so strongly disagree, to somehow, if it's with one person, to talk about, to tell stories. So important. Again, listeners, we are here with the Reverend Gil H. Caldwell and Marilyn Bennett, the co-executive producers and the partnership at the center of the new documentary, From Selma to Stonewall, Are We There Yet? You know, one of the central themes of watching this documentary, which, I, again, I just enjoyed so immensely, and it's so important that we engage in these topics, was this idea of journey. And, and so many of the people that you feature in the film talk about their journey. I, I would love to hear about your journeys 
in making this film. Reverend, what did you learn about yourself in participating in this work? I guess how, how important it was for me as an interviewer often on the film uh, to, to really listen to people as, as they responded to questions are posed or as they told their stories. In a sense, I guess uh, Marilyn and I in the film uh, sort of affirmed the importance of storytelling by allowing people to tell their own stories, and so I think that was important. Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is being clergy is, is that we are so central to conversations in life uh, that we can become egocentric and, and therefore person-centered, and uh, in a sense sort of uh, stepping to the side and allowing other people to share their concerns. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to comment in the film, uh, let's see, who was it, Marilyn, who said that the most, uh, what is it, the most gated community in the world mm-hmm. is the human heart. Yeah. Uh, let's see, mm-hmm. who said that? Uh, that was Brad Braxton. Yeah, that, that's right, yeah, which is a part of the film. And that, that for me, is powerful. And so... Just, just you know, listening uh, is, is so important because p- pastors spend so much time engaged in monologue producing that to be involved in dialogue was important for me. And Marilyn, how about you? What did you learn about yourself through this journey of, of putting this work out there? I, you know, it's similar that being able to sit and listen, um, it actually became kind of a, a grounding experience. And what I've taken taken with me is the simplicity, but also how profound it is to sit and listen someone's story and and to recognize they are sharing a part of themselves but also in some of the conversations in you just mentioned brad he was willing to really let me ask a lot of questions about race and things that we again um, things we don't talk about but just things that i had been thinking about um, for instance um, the term white supremacy well i usually hear that in terms of the People who live in the northwestern part of Montana, the alt-right now, they have their new name. But to think of whites being, all of us being white supremacists, Brad really broke that down for me, of just the the economic history that we have, um, the economic advantage that we have had at the sacrifices of African-American slaves and, and racist systems. Um, I also, we met with him after Dylan Roof had murdered the church goers in South Carolina, those wonderful people. And I was saying, you know, I know that it's said that white people always say that the the shooter must be insane. And I said, you know, I don't, I say that because how could anyone do that if they weren't crazy? You know, but I'm not saying they should have a mental health defense. I'm just saying, how could anyone do that? And then he was able to talk back and tell me, you know, what he thought. And that's a that's a real that really is so rare. And I was humbled by it. But I also what I learned was just to sit with someone. I didn't have to jump in. I could just relax and hear. Yeah. So much of conversation we get tense and want to move to our next thought, but it really is a gift to sit back and listen.
Well, another theme of the of the film that that is so important for anybody who watches it to to tease out of the experience is this idea of staying engaged. And I think you you do so well, the two of you and everyone in the film, to articulate the barriers to staying engaged. That there there are so many different parts of our society that will deter us at any and all opportunity to disengage. But the importance is to stay with it. Reverend, talk to me about staying engaged and and overcoming those challenges to to be in that moment and do this important work. Yeah, I, that, that's, of course, an important kind of a, a topic and concern. Um, I mean, one of the things, and it's, it's related, I believe, is, is that um, it's important, uh, as people see our film, or as important as for other discussions, that we have discussions about gay rights or black rights in, in, in our homogeneous groupings. You know, that is to say, when, when uh, a group of persons who are, who are white and gay uh, that's an opportunity to simply talk about race or in a group of black persons or with straight persons talk about gay rights. And I guess what I'm saying is that one of the things I've discovered over the years is that candid conversation begins best for some people when they are with a group that they can trust and really let their hair down. Uh, sometimes we create artificial groups that, that are that are multiracial or are sort of straight and, 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 and gay and try to have conversation when, in fact, the very artificiality of that coming together tends to uh, uh, diminish the authentic conversation. So I guess I think that that's the way of staying engaged, to be able, I guess, initially to talk about gay rights or, or black rights in the homogeneous community in which we find ourselves at home. I mean, I say book clubs, and maybe people related to your, your program who are involved in book clubs or other kinds of study groups uh, learning how in that setting where they trust the people around them to really open up uh, with uh, their areas of uh, growth and the areas where they need to grow on matters of race and sexual orientation. So I guess that's my, my, my response uh, sort of initially to what you're saying. So important. question. Marilyn, finish out by moving us towards action. We, we screen the film, we watch it, we have all of these ideas. What are some next steps for us? What can we do with this content? What we recommend when um, there's a panel present, um, uh, I know I'm, I will get around to answering your question, but, but what we do when we have a panel present after the film is really work to get people that are activists in the city or leaders in the city or represent a group so that after the film, people know how to connect with the people who are doing this work, who are working on whether it's police brutality or homeless youth or health care or whatever. So there is a specific thing for them to get involved with. And what we will have with our film as it goes out is we'll have a curriculum for educational settings and study groups and discussion guides. But we also want to have a guide for activists and especially for organizations to know how to use the film as a tool to help them organize um, people. And what I like to say is that it doesn't take a crowd of a hundred to do something. It takes a group of four to get together and say, you know, with four people with a pressing issue, what are we going to do about this? Right. And sit down and figure out what would be a protest that would be connected to a change they wanted to see and figure that out and then bring in people and then bring in more people. And, and you know, that's how revolutions get started in in the revolution of change, of creating systemic change or creating a better place where people can live. 
there have been people doing this work. There have been groups that have been at the intersections doing these, this work. And so part of it is saying, find those groups and we'll help you find those groups because we don't have to you know, reinvent the wheel. And I think that going back to what Gil said about being with the same setting, with that white people can challenge each other on white privilege. And so what that means is when you are getting together to create change at the intersections, that white people can check their privilege. You know, who who needs to speak here? Who do I need to listen to? Who needs to lead this meeting as far as the change that we're going to set up? So, for example, queer homeless youth, having queer homeless youth at the meeting, yeah. you know, to, to say this is what this experience is about, that we don't go in with assumptions to fix things for people when we don't know those people. So the, the call to action is to, one, on a very personal level, is to, to recognize where the film touched you, what irritated you, or what excited you. And then to examine how do I explore that, that growing edge that Gil was talking about? How do I explore that? And, and who are the different people I can do that with? And two, where, where can I put my time? How can I get involved with other people? And how do I start working across lines at the intersections? That in those conversations, uh, you know, talking about white privilege, but there's a great need to talk about straight privilege. And one of the ways that I bond with people as I talk about white privilege is to acknowledge in a group my male privilege so that all of us are, are looking at that privileged place, place in our lives in, in order to further the justice struggle. Nice. Listeners, the Reverend Gilbert Caldwell and Marilyn Bennett are the co-founders of Truth in Progress, a multimedia project dealing with issues of race, sexual orientation, gender identity, and religion. You need to write this very second. Go learn more about them. You can stroll on over to truthinprogress.com. That's truth in progress.com and you can learn also there about from selma to stonewall are we there yet let me say this to both of you i, I can think of no better day to talk about this but i think in some ways that's a, a little bit of a cop-out because we should be talking about this every single day but i, I can certainly invoke today uh, dr king's quote darkness cannot drive out darkness only light can do that. And I think that's one of the things that, that this film does, that your work has done. It highlights things that are important and things we can address through connection. And you two do so well to put that forth to everybody who will view this film. And it's a real honor to behold. Thank you so much. Well, please, to the two of you, keep doing what you're doing. There, Obviously, there's more work to do, but you have certainly created some progress here. Thank you so much.
All right, folks, and we are back with another incredible guest for this week's show. Let me introduce him to you. Lucas Grindley was recently named the editor-in-chief of The Advocate. The Advocate, of course, being the world's leading LGBTQ news source. The magazine reports monthly on news, politics, business, medical issues, fine arts, and entertainment. And Advocate.com is our source for breaking news and current events in all of those areas. Lucas also serves as editorial director and senior vice president for Here Media. He joined the Advocate in 2011 after serving as online managing editor for National Journal Magazine in D.C., and he led Advocate.com to a win in Folio Magazine's 2016 Eddie Digital Awards as the nation's top consumer news magazine website. The Association of LGBTQ Journalists honored Lucas with their 2016 Sarah Pettit Memorial Award for LGBT Journalist of the Year, and right now he's here with us. Lucas, welcome to this show is so gay. Oh my God, that was the nicest introduction I've ever had. I had to cut out a ton, Lucas. You've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> was this the dream? Was, was journalism the route you always wanted to go? Well, I started in journalism in high school at my high school newspaper. So sort of, yes, it was this or be a lawyer. And I did mock teen court and I was just, it was crippling. It was too much anxiety. <laughs> I could do it. <laughs> there have to be videos of that somewhere, right? Maybe. Okay. This is probably too early for all that. All right. All right. Well, huge congratulations on Editor-in-Chief of The Advocate. That's pretty darn cool, man. I've always wanted to be Editor-in-Chief of The Advocate. I'm not going to lie. After college, I started, I wrote letters to The Advocate, just hoping someone would answer and say, hey, yeah, we'd love to have you come join on as some random person in the office. I would have done anything. No one ever answered. (laughs) (laughs) I finally got the... uh, the previous editor-in-chief, who I will always owe this to, uh, he finally answered one of my letters, and that's how I started working there. That's incredible. He was on our show years ago. How do you approach transition? From You're, you're a completely different person. How do you approach a transition like this? Well, we've been working. I mean, I've been working at The Advocate for a long time now, right. so it's not uh, that part's not unusual, and really it's about the transition of the, the magazine's focus because what I really – this moment that we're in, there's almost an, there's always an advocate for its time. Right. There was an advocate for the moment when it was revolutionary to put celebrities on the cover because visibility was such a huge issue. And the advocate now, I feel like we need to make this case for intersectional causes, that we need to recognize ourselves in the plights of other people and say, what they're experiencing sounds an awful lot like what I went through. And if I remember what it was like to go through that, there's no possible way I could ignore it. Yeah. And if if we were to able to do that in all of these areas that Donald Trump is trying to divide us on, uh, if we were to actually able to come together around LGBT principles, even when they don't involve LGBT people explicitly, then he's not going to be successful. The Republicans aren't going to be successful ultimately uh, in setting an agenda that's xenophobic or that demagogues anyone or that shames people for who they are because we've been through that and we won't let that happen. So let me push you further on that. What what then is the advocate's role in bringing the community together? We report now, let's take Black Lives Matter, for example. Yeah. Black Lives Matter is coincidentally run by uh, two of the founders are queer black, black women, which on its own, you could say, okay, the advocate should cover that because two of the founders are queer black women. But the reason we should cover it is because we experienced police brutality. LGBT people experienced police brutality at their earliest moments of our own resistance, and that's what Stonewall was about. That was the Black Cat riots that actually 
founded The Advocate. The Advocate comes from Los Angeles 50 years ago. This is our 50th anniversary year. Unbelievable. And 50 years ago, uh, at the Black Cat Bar, there was a police raid, and people weren't going to take it anymore in 1967. And that's what spawned this group called Pride, and The Advocate was actually a newsletter of this group called Pride, and it became just a national magazine because there was such a huge need for it. But we've experienced police brutality, and we've our entire movement in some ways was born out of it. Uh, at least the advocate was born out of it. And we should be approaching Black Lives Matter from that perspective, that we understand what you have been through. So when we cover it, I feel an obligation to bring people along to explain that connection as often as we can. Um, and I see it happen. I mean, I, I see people more regularly relating to other people. And it's not just because of what the advocate's doing. It's because of what's happening in our country that you are more likely to... <laughs> you're seeing the effects of division all around you, yeah. and you're doing something about it. You know, in, in announcing your transition to editor-in-chief, the, the Here Media CEO said, that, said this, Lucas exemplifies the best of 21st century journalism. I'm not maybe exact, and I'm in my 30s, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Well, I have very strong opinions about it, but I could go on and on about The main difference is, I hear people all the time, they will say that the advocate, it's easy when you look at it from LGBT rights, that the advocate is biased toward LGBT people. Well, if you consider being LGBT to be an issue that has two sides, and you have to both report both sides objectively, then, uh, yeah, you could say we're biased. I just think we're right. There you go. And there's a huge number of different – once you start looking at Black Lives Matter or at all these other issues as LGBT issues, even if they don't have LGBT people in them, you take the same approach to it. There are no two sides to whether or not a person should be shot and killed while dealing with the police. Uh, they're unarmed. They, none of that – that shouldn't have two sides to it. There's only one side, right, the side of right. And they say that that's biased in the old – uh, reporting journalism. I call it the old way because it's not this, he said this and she said that. Well, that's what's caused Donald Trump is that we give his false statements equal weight to things that are true, that are just fact. And if you keep going in that direction, you debase the entire, you debase the fabric of everyday society that we have. You can have differences of opinions, but you can't have differences about facts. Right. And really, facts are the same thing as right and wrong. They, if you were to look, it's easier if you look back on 50 years from now. We've had 50 years from the Advocates founding. 50 years from now, what will we be ashamed that we reported on as if there were two sides? Because the talking directly to the journalists, if you can't imagine yourself reporting on the civil rights movement uh, and whether or not women should have been able to vote as if there were two sides to that issue... If you, how would you feel if that you had done that now? Because it should be just an issue of right or wrong. And there are so many things that is not over. None of that is over. That's still going on. And the problem now is that we're, we're in it. We're so close to it. It's hard to identify, just like it was 50 years ago, what's an issue of right and wrong and what's an issue of objectivity. So that to me is the, the difference what is new journalism. I would assume that if I were you, I would take great pride in being called a whiny gay social justice warrior site. I love that quote. I do. I do, yes. <laughs> that what? happened because uh, Breitbart really doesn't like us. The more we go in this direction, 
Breitbart writes about us and calls us whiny SJWs, social justice warriors. And I was like, well, call it what it is. <laughs> In my head, someone over there at The Advocate has mocked up a masthead with that on it, which I would support. We should get shirts. We should get hats. Yeah. Uh I swear to you, I will buy one. So please, you know, if you're like, we don't even have one guaranteed sale, you do. You absolutely do. Okay. There you go. You're the first sale. I'll send you the first t-shirt. So excited. You know, editor-in-chief of The Advocate, you have all of these other roles, editorial director, senior vice president for Here Media. Two-part question. Number one, I am concerned that you're not sleeping enough. And number two, how do you go about balancing all of that? I work longer days. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's literally true. And then I, I also have uh, twin daughters. My daughter's just turned five in November. So there's that to manage as well. There's no way around doing it except to say that it is a lot of work. But I also feel a lot of obligation to the moment. I mean, anyone who works in LGBT media could potentially work someplace else and get paid more and you know have more resources that are just at their disposal. But the, the reason you work in LGBT media or in really any minority-focused media is because you care about what you're doing. And every single person I work with cares about LGBT people from sales, from marketing, to any place you go in the company. That's why they work here. And it's a unique experience to be among everyone who has a common vision or that you all have a common purpose. So that's why I do it. And that's why I spend as much time as I possibly can in every given moment to work on it. You know, I'm a college professor. I have so many of my students are always looking to go into journalism, which I enjoy immensely. What skills are you seeing people maybe needing to work on a little bit more? What what, what would you like to refine in the populations coming up uh, to be even more successful in your field? I have done a couple guest drop-bys at classrooms and things. I'm from University of South Florida, and I've gone there here and there to talk to people. Um, You know, it's funny because I don't want to speak for older people or something like that, but there's always an assumption that young people coming up, they all know how all these things work, and they've got all this experience with social media or can start a blog or whatever it might be. And that's actually not true. (laughs) The more I talk to people, the more you realize, yeah, sure, they have a competency that is not like their predecessors because they've used it all their lives, but competency is not the same as expertise. And whether it's social media and Facebook, you there's actually a lot of expertise that goes into Facebook and not just posting a, an update. There's a lot that goes behind it. And it's good if you're a young journalist coming up that you have an interest in social media or whatever it might be. But develop it. You really need to figure out what is that expertise behind it, because there is. There's a lot. Yeah. Now, look, I, I have no doubt that it is extraordinarily complex to work at, say, Out, you know, for Out Magazine. And I, gosh, I remember even I interned at Out Magazine when I was 19 years old. I think I lasted maybe two weeks. It didn't go well for me. But the Advocate is a is a, a little bit of a different beast in that you are covering so many different areas. How do you set out to find that balance between the entertainment pieces and, and politics and news and, and creating content that <laughs> doesn't feel, frankly, overwhelming to us? The Advocate has to, when it talks about entertainment, try to highlight those things or amplify. Like when you talk about people on Twitter, for example, and you have some huge Twitter following, I kind of feel like you're obligated to raise up people who have 
smaller followings, but ha- whose voice you agree with, right? And in some ways, that uh, you could think of that what the advocates' obligations are in entertainment in the same way, in that we have to raise up the storylines or the themes or the people's own kind of plots that they experience in their lives using our voice. That's, that's our job. So when we, you could talk about Moonlight, for example, that we don't just cover Moonlight's coming out as great as new gay film. You could, but when we're doing it, we want to talk about the larger point behind Moonlight and raise up the fact that it's bringing visibility to black gay men that didn't exist before. And here's why it didn't exist before. And that's a problem. Uh, so we try to bring that to everything that we do. And we feel the obligation to use our platform to bring up even smaller projects than Moonlight, but uh, as often as you can to find the underlying thing that is the larger challenge facing society. We'll, we'll take clips from films like other people when they came out. It's another big example, but we took a clip from that. There was just this one little moment where, which you absolutely have to see that film if you haven't. Oh, yeah. There's one little moment where the gay lead character is talking to his boyfriend about growing up and feeling awkward and uh, you know closeted and what that was like. I won't give anything away. But it was just a really good vignette about what it's like to be a gay man of a certain age who had this one experience. So that's how we, we shared it. It's like, you'll, you'll relate to this moment from the movie. If, uh, and that's important. You need to not feel alone in everything, in your opinions, in your situation, that you don't feel like you're the only one. So we do that too. Yeah. You know, normally towards an end of the interview, I, I would normally ask my guests, as I've done for eight years now, hey, what are, you, what are you looking forward to? What exciting things are coming up? But I feel like we have a pretty good sense that there are a lot of exciting things to yeah. to uh, cover coming up there in the politics realm. So let's let's tweak this a little bit. How do you approach preparing your staff? What what instructions do you do you give to everybody working over there? to cover this really uncertain transition where we're not really sure what's going to be coming up, but we know there's going to be a lot coming up. How, how do you guide everyone over there at The Advocate? I feel like my advice should be they should all download like a meditation app or something. <laughs> the Trump administration, we have launched since Election Day, immediately after Election Day, the Friday afterward, we launched a newsletter called The Resistance which everybody's using this phrase now, but it's a roundup of everything that's happened in the week uh, in opposing Donald Trump's anti-equality agenda. And then we added onto that a a video component, so we do a, a week of kind of more visual version of that. And certainly what's going on with Donald Trump is going to be the thing we're talking about. The fact that Sessions confirmation hearings are up right now, Jeff Sessions for Attorney General, and you have in him a man who twice voted against hate crimes laws, whose job it would now be to enforce them. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's overwhelming. Probably the main thing I tell them is it's overwhelming that we have so much to cover, but that everything that we do makes a difference. We have to do, everyone has to do something. And everything that we do makes a difference. It was interesting when the Republicans, the first thing they did when they got into Congress, what was it? They they undid the ethics police. There's an ethics police in Congress, and they just decided we're going to close that down. Well, everyone got really upset about that on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, and we're all told, oh, you're, you're Facebooking and you're Twittering. It doesn't matter. It's just a waste of time. You're speaking into the void. Well, it mattered on social media. Even Donald Trump joined in, right? Yeah. Uh, and it mattered that people went to their congressperson's offices or wrote letters or that they signed petitions. You know, then people will say that those aren't as 
effective as going and visiting or making a call. But all of it combined together mattered so much that the very next day they undid it. They folded. They were afraid of all of the response that they were getting. And that won't happen 100% of the time in what's going to happen in the Congress. They control all three levels of legislating. And they could, if they want to, just pass one thing after the next, just keep driving forward. doesn't matter how many people they run over. They're just going to keep going and look straight ahead. Don't think about it. But most politicians don't do that. Most politicians really worry about what their constituents are saying because they don't want to lose control of power. So while there will not be wins on every single thing that the Republicans decide they're going to set out to, every unraveling of civil rights that they could possibly do, there will be some, and there will be some curtailing. And regardless of whether or not uh, even that much happens, there will be another election in two years. So everything that you do matters. And you guys play such an important role in that. Again, listeners, Lucas Grinley is the editor-in-chief of The Advocate. You all should, of course, right this very second, stroll on over to advocate.com and learn about everything. I mean, you can get a sense of everything that's happening in the community, and, and you should be checking it every other minute because developments happen all the time, and Lucas and everybody over there at The Advocate is helping us stay informed. I will tell you this, Lucas, you're, you're doing really important work. I value it greatly. And, and when you set up what I think will be your inevitable meditation weekly workshop i will come wearing my whiny gay sjw t-shirt so i'm excited sounds good please keep doing what you're doing sir thank you write what you know so they say all i know is i don't know what to write or the right way to write it this is big lady don't screw it up this is not some little vaudeville i'm reviewing poor little kids versus rich greedy sour pusses huh it's a cinch it could practically write itself and let's pray it does because as i may have mentioned i have no clue what i'm doing am i insane this is what i've been waiting for well that plus the screaming of 10 angry editors a girl it's a girl how the hell is that even legal look just go and get her not only that there's a story behind the story thousands of children exploited invisible speak up take a stand and there's someone to write about it that's how things get better give life's little guy some ink and when it dries just watch what happens those kids will All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we don't have a ton of time left on this week's show, but let's get to some of the latest LGBTQ news that's out there. Just a few days before President-elect Donald Trump is to be inaugurated, 175 mayors from 42 states united this week to send a message. That message is they will secure LGBT protections locally, even if they're not advancing federally. The event launched a bipartisan coalition of mayors dedicated to providing support and resources to assist local governments that want to pass LGBT protections. The coalition created a website that outlines steps the group will take, including championing municipal-level protections for LGBT people, prohibiting non-essential travel to states with anti-LGBT laws, and supporting local law enforcement on LGBT-inclusive trainings. The Center for American Progress announced at the meeting that 
that it will release a report explaining a variety of options for non-legislative actions that local governments can take to protect LGBT people. As of now, just to remind you all, only 32 states provide LGBT protections. Included among the list is to issue non-discrimination protections for city and county employees and in public services. They want to prevent discrimination and expand opportunities through grants and contracts and establish LGBT liaisons, commissions, and advisory boards. These are all actions that can be taken even if the federal landscape is looking pretty murky. And these stories are so important, and we will continue to cover them as we move forward. I know that people are disheartened. There's so many emotions out there. I think the overwhelming one has got to be uncertainty. We're not sure what is going to happen in this country with regards to LGBTQ protection. So it's wonderful to see all of these different legislators getting together and saying, all right, there's still stuff that we can do. A new administration does not mean that we do not pursue progress. There is progress that can happen. We just might have to approach it a different way. So we will see what happens with that. With regards to actual gay people out there, a new poll has given insight into how many people are actually LGBT. The analysis is by Gallup, of course, that major and well-respected polling company here in the U.S. The polling company gathered the data from 1.6 million interviews with U.S. adults who participate in their daily tracking poll, and the results have shown an interesting uptick. Ready for this? It uncovered that more people than ever are identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. When Gallup carried out the same polling in 2012, it found that 3.5% of Americans said they are LGBT. However, the latest analysis has showed an increase. Some 4.1% now say they're under the LGBT umbrella, with 49,000 of those interviewed answering yes when asked. That's equivalent to about 10 million Americans. The results were much higher among millennials than the overall average. The proportion of millennials self-identifying as LGBT was 7.3%, which is up from 5.8% in 2012. Gallup said that research concluded that millennials may be more willing to admit their sexual orientation and are less concerned about privacy than their elders. That's some incredible news, a huge uptick in the number of U.S. citizens that are identifying as LGBT. It's about 10 million people at this point. That's a lot of folks. It's a lot of folks. And if we band together. Again, we don't subscribe all to the same political ideology, and I get that, but one thing we should subscribe to is the fact that we want protections across the board, the same protections that are afforded our brothers and sisters, the same protections that are afforded our neighbors. That surely has to be something that bonds us together. We're not quite there yet, but surely that's something we can work towards, right? Especially because, again, there's some uncertainty on the horizon. Here's one piece of that. President-elect Donald Trump has met with an extremely, extremely conservative prospective U.S. Supreme Court pick who said he wants gays to be jailed for having consensual sex in their own homes. Despite President-elect Trump saying that same-sex marriage is settled, he also said he wanted to appoint justices who would challenge the 1973 abortion rights case, Roe v. Wade. One of those conservative judges is William H. Pryor Jr., who in the past has suggested that same-sex couples should be punished. 
with jail time for having sex in their own homes. Mr. Pryor has also been forced to deny that he posed nude for gay porn while a student. Yeah, there have been all sorts of attacks on this guy, but again, the ones that we should focus on are the ones where he has said horrible things about the LGBTQ community. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals Justice met with Donald Trump last weekend. They met in New York, but they spoke on the condition of anonymity as the meeting was not made public. Trump has already said that he would fill the seat of late Justice Scalia, who died back in 2016 within his first two weeks in office. Within the next couple weeks, folks, we're going to find out where this new Supreme Court justice is coming from and what their ideologies are. Well, this justice, Pryor Jr., a former Alabama attorney general, defended a law in 2003 in Texas which criminalizes consensual gay sex, and he compared it to polygamy, incest, pedophilia, prostitution, and adultery. So there you go. That's one piece of the uncertainty that is coming our way. What will the Supreme Court look like? So sure, Donald Trump is saying many of these issues are settled law, but if the Supreme Court pick does not agree with that, we're in some trouble, folks. We are most definitely in some trouble. In Texas, despite hopes from some Republicans that Texas may soon have its own bathroom bill, the House Speaker has cast doubt on that measure. Apparently, they are paying attention there, at least some of them. As we covered last week, State Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that he will be moving to introduce a bill, the one that has proven catastrophic in North Carolina. Well, now, despite being called a priority by Lieutenant Governor Patrick, the bill could threaten to split the Republican Party as House Speaker Joe Strauss has cast doubt on the measure, saying that it could be, quote, bad for business. Yes, that is what has happened, sir, in North Carolina. You would do well to heed that example. House Speaker Joe Strauss said this, quote, I think we should be very careful about doing something that can make Texas less competitive. Yeah. It has been estimated by Forbes that North Carolina lost $600 million over six months because of this legislation. And in Texas, it is being estimated by the Association of Businesses that such a new ordinance, a new amendment, a new law could cost 100,000 jobs and $8 billion in the state's economy if they pass it. So you would do well to heed the example. Why would you ignore that? It will not be good for Texas business. So that's the one of the good things that came out of North Carolina is at least there is an example to heed, even as they still have not repealed HB2 in North Carolina. And finally, a former women's basketball coach has alleged in a lawsuit against a university that she was forced to resign from her job after her head coach found out that she was gay. The lawsuit was filed by former assistant coach Courtney Graham against Drake University. She alleges that head coach Jenny Baransic had found out she was gay and she was made to leave her job. Drake University has denied the allegations and that a state panel had also previously denied the claim by the former assistant coach. We will most certainly keep our eyes on that. And that, my friends, is all the time we have for this week's episode. Our thanks to the Reverend Caldwell, to Marilyn Bennett, to Lucas Grinley, incredible folks doing incredible work, and you guys are incredible as well. I know this is going to be a little bit of a difficult week, and by that I mean it's going to be an incredibly difficult week for many of you as we look again at this political landscape, but I urge you, you have to use your voice 
to make a difference. That's what creates change. So get out there. Go use your voice to lift up the voices of your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, of all of our allies out there. And while you're out there making a difference, while you're out there using your voice, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?